You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Welcome to the How to Hunt Turkeys podcast. I'm Paul Campbell. Join me as we dive into the world of turkey hunting. Every episode, we'll explore the minds of the finest turkey hunters around. We'll take a look at the people, the places, the tactics, gear, and the culture that creates the mystique around America's favorite bird. That's right. I said it. America's favorite bird, the wild turkey. Throw on your turkey vest. Grab your box call. Let's talk some turkey. The How to Hunt Turkeys podcast is brought to you by Go Wild. Visit timetogowild.com or download the app on iOS or Android. Go Wild has all the gear the wild turkey hunter needs. Camel clothes, hats, vest, turkey calls, decoys, and everything else. Sign up for a free account today and get $10 off your first order. Timetogowild.com. Wicked North Gear, delivering the very best gear for a life well-lived in the great outdoors. From field kits and DIY tax derby solutions to hats, hoodies, stickers, and more, visit wickednorthgear.com. You know, I don't I don't want to talk myself up too much, but I freaking love that intro. I hope you guys like it too. <clears throat> Great tune behind there. I love goblin turkeys. I worked really hard on that. Every time I listen to that before I start the show, I'm like, wow. You're an idiot, but somehow you made what I think is a great podcast intro. Thank you so much for listening to the How to Hunt Turkeys podcast uh, on Sportsman's Empire. Thank you to our sponsors, Go Wild, Wicked North, Newcomb Gear, Newcomb Hunting Blinds, excuse me, and TurkeySeason.com. Thank you to everyone uh, for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. <clears throat> 
I know I've been absent for uh, for a few weeks. Please forgive my absence. If you're looking for some some sweet turkey hunting tips, turkey hunting, turkey killing content, today's your day, uh, man. I've, I'm on the board here in Ohio, tagged out in Ohio. Uh, two turkeys down for me this year so far. I've got a few more hunts left. Uh, I've taken taken some people out, introduced them to the pursuit that I love so much, wild turkey hunting. I couldn't be happier. I got uh, my boy Kenny's on the board, bring, taking my son out tomorrow. My buddy Austin's out uh, out there. Justin and Brandon got you guys out there. Uh, and and I, I can't say how many listeners have reached out to me and said, hey, killing my first turkey, got it done. Been hunting, you know, one guy had been hunting turkeys for 20 years, 20 years, and he finally got his first turkey public land man i'm so happy for you guys uh you know if, if you're ki- if you've killed your first turkey you're probably not listening to this podcast right now so when you tune in next year to to refresh congratulations i'm proud of you thanks so much for the support uh listen join the nwtf nwtf.org click on become a member up at the top if you are turkey hunting this year i want you to know how much effort it goes in through the state agencies, uh, you know, through, through government organizations, for nonprofit organizations, members, volunteers of the National Wild Turkey Federation. They're doing so much good work uh, across the country, across all 49 states with turkeys. Uh, it, it really is $35 a year. You get a subscription to Turkey Country magazine. Uh, you get some really cool, uh, there's some cool free gear, you know, when you sign up, check it out, tumblers, whatever it may be. I'm not sure what's going on right now. NWTF.org. I can't tell you how important it is to be a member of that organization. Uh, and it's really a small amount of money, but it goes a very, very long way. You are important. Your money is important. Your membership with that organization is, is important. So NWTF.org, click on become a member. Thank you for that. So today, the reason I said that is, uh, if you listen to the show, you know that I am a, uh, a full-time employee of the National Wild Turkey Federation. I am so grateful for that job. I'm grateful for the work uh, that, I, that I get to do day in and day out. I've got one of my coworkers, a dear friend of mine, Ryan Boyer. He is a, a biologist, a regional biologist for the National Wild Turkey Federation out of the state of Michigan. He's a really smart dude, sharp guy. He's got a, this conversation is about what the turkeys are doing right now, okay? Beginning of the breeding season, middle of the breeding season, tail end of the breeding season, what they're doing, the vocalizations that they're making, what they're looking for, kind of their day in and day out. Listen to this, listen to this whole episode. Okay. If you, if you are, if you're still struggling, if, uh, if it's kind of the end of the season down in the South peak of the peak of your season, you know, if, in, if you're, if you're in some of those later States, Virginia, uh, Maryland, the, the, that have started, or you're out West, um, or if you're in the North where it's just getting started, I mean, I, today is, is April or excuse me, today's May 1st in New York. You just opened up. Um, listen to this. Biologically, what's going on in the woods is really, it's really important for a hunter to understand what the turkeys are doing and, and make your game plan based off of what just by their nature the turkeys are doing. That's what this episode's about. It's going to give you a lot of like just really neat pieces uh, and information about what the turkeys are doing. So, Check that out. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really good talk. Um, one thing that I want to address. I did an interview a couple a couple weeks ago with the OKS Hunters, uh, the OKS Hunter podcast. Dear friend of mine, Eric, really great talk. If you haven't listened to it, listen to that podcast. Um, there was a firestorm that was on TikTok because of some of the things that I said. Uh, and so what, what we were talking about is the context of the conversation was not shaming hunters, for participating in the support in, in the sport that we love, turkey hunting, participating, harvesting something legally and ethically, and so we were talking about killing 
Jake's. Okay, Jake, immature turkey. In that podcast, I said, you know, there's a 0% chance that those Jake's are breeding. So in actuality, it's like 1%, like less than 1%. So 99% of the breeding is done by mature turkeys. So if you look at the research, you look at the, the you, you talk to people that are biologists, uh, that are smarter than I'll ever be, they will tell you that there's no biological impact from harvesting a Jake. Okay, keep that in mind. If it's legal in your state, not all states, it's legal to take an immature turkey. So know your regulations. We talk about that and burn the boats, know your rules. Do not feel bad if you harvest a Jake. I want you to feel proud of that hunt. I want you to embrace it. I want you to learn from everything that happened. Don't let people shame you for, for, for learning how to hunt turkeys and harvesting an immature turkey. That turkey has value. That hunt had value. You have value. Don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to the hate. I can tell you with certainty that there's no biological impact. And this is coming from researchers, people smarter than me. There's no biological impact to harvesting an immature male turkey, a Jake, uh, during during the season. So listen to that episode on OKS Hunter. It was really good. A ton of good talks, a, a lot of really good information. Uh, if you feel so inclined to, to look at the clip uh, that caused an absolute firestorm, uh, you can find it on the OKS Hunter's TikTok. It was a really good clip. I enjoyed it. Man, your buddy Paul has been getting death threats over it. So, uh, man, keep it in perspective. All right. We're fortunate to be able to hunt turkeys. We're fortunate to have turkeys in this country. We're, we're, we're fortunate. We're lucky to have, uh, you know, the North American model of conservation that allows us the privilege. It's a privilege, okay, to be able to hunt wild turkeys in this country. And it's not always going to be easy. But I want you to understand that, that it, it is, it's, it's important. And take it seriously. Know that we're all we're all just extremely lucky to be able to, to do what we love to do in the spring woods in the fall, whenever it is that you love to hunt. So keep that in mind, keep that in perspective. Man, I'm here to help you guys. I'm here to just spread positivity and bring people into the pursuit that I love, bring people into the organization that I love, the National Wild Turkey Federation, and help you learn how to hunt and kill the animal that I love most on this face of the earth, man. The North American wild turkey. Listen. I love each and every one of you. Have a damn good turkey season this year. I'm going to put out a few more episodes, uh, you know, regularly uh, while while turkey season uh, is on everyone's mind here in the month of May. But thank you so much for listening to this. Uh, Go out. Have a great, great turkey season. Stay focused. Burn the boats. Turkeyseason.com. You can email me, Paul, at turkeyseason.com if you ever want to chat. Find me on Instagram. If you've you've emailed me uh, or messaged me on the Instagram, the How to Hunt Turkeys Instagram, my bad, dude. Uh, I locked myself out of that account, so I'm working to get that back. So thank you again so much for listening to me. Each and every one of you is important. I appreciate the support. Burn the boats. Have a damn good season. That have the, the the goal right now. I mean, the, the mission of the of the National Wild Turkey Federation. You and I have talked about this extensively. Is it, it hasn't been more important right now than it has been in fifty years, and because of the issues that, that the animal was facing, and you know the pressure, you know from from legislators and everything, you know within anti hunting legislation, so that you split that mission. But if we're talking about the conservation mission, I mean, it, it's never been more important than it is right now in twenty twenty three. And the work that that's going on, so that's really neat. I like that you, that, that that happens. The Wild Turkey Symposium was just last June, right? Correct. That's every four years. It's going to be every three years now, just because of the issue. So every uh, five, yeah, every five years. Okay, so mm-hmm. and, they, and they're dropping it. Yeah, yeah, they're dropping it again to four now, right? Just because. Yeah, of, we, we had a delay because of COVID with the last COVID. symposium, um, and so it was it was supposed to be. Hooked.
hosted in 2020, um, but we'd hosted it last June um, with uh, with support from uh, North Carolina down there. Uh, but yeah, they're they're going to bump it up um, to not wait another five years from this one, uh, just because there there is so much interest right now um, in in the future and, and uh, status and trends of wild turkeys and, and research associated with disease and harvest and hunter effort. Uh, and you know brood survival you know, the list goes on and on like you said we're we're in a uh, unique situation um and a challenging one in a lot of places across the country that are seeing uh, pretty precipitous declines in wild turkey abundance so uh, the the need and the importance of the role of science uh, which is critical to our mission delivery as a science-based conservation organization uh, but working really closely with some of the leading researchers uh, like Dr. Chamberlain, Dr. Collier, um, they're, they're graduate students and helping provide support for research to our state agencies where we can uh, to help address some of these questions and, and get at what uh, what may be impacting wild turkey populations. Yeah, I think, you know, one, one thing, just as a turkey hunter in the last year, I knew everyone knows there's an issue with with population declines and, and not, I, I, I don't want to say issue, I want to say challenge. There's a challenge with population declines in, in a lot of portions of the country and here in Ohio where I'm at we you know we dropped our bag limit from two turkeys in the spring to one turkey in the spring uh, and it was really as a preventative measure and just like you know let's just let's let's limit the impact that hunters have and let's figure out what's going on so I really like that there are a lot of really smart people passionate people that have like a laser focus on figuring out the issues that that we have so you know as I travel across the country I have like this this giant target on my back because I work for the National Wild Turkey Federation and as do you. So that's the first thing. A lot of times the first question, well, where are all the turkeys? And so you and I have talked a lot. I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of biologists. I like to understand. I like to, I like to hear what you guys have to say. And when I say you guys, I mean people that have their hands literally in the dirt about learning and not trying to understand, you know, what the, what the issues are. And I, I try to, I, I take that and I condense it down into someone like me who is just an idiot when it comes to that stuff. And I feel like I bother you all the time. I'm like, Ryan, what does this mean? <laughs> and, you know, and you've been very, very gracious with your time about helping me understand, you know, this really complex issue that we have of wild turkey population decline. So talk about that. And, and this interview is live, man. I, 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 this is great. This was the conversation. I want to put this in to this podcast. What so what just from like your perspective, what are some of the issues or the or the the, the causes for wild turkey population decline and in this country? Yeah, so that's a it's a great question. Um, un unfortunately, there's not a simple and straightforward answer. Uh, there's not a silver bullet, right? Um, that it's going to lend itself to, uh, you know, hey, if we if we do this or pull this lever, that's uh, going to result in, in in a change in wild turkey populations. But I think you have to kind of step back from it and look at it, um, you know, from from a broader perspective. For instance, you know, any any time you restore wildlife population, generally there's a there's a really uh, boom, right? There's an increase in their population to a point where it reaches a carrying capacity, and then you see it come down slightly, and then generally there's some there's some fluctuations there after it's hit that that upper threshold or it goes up and those ups and downs as it's trying to establish based on a bunch of different environmental and biological factors. And so, you know, for the most part, post restoration with wild turkeys, you know, from a lot of states perspectives that we're kind of in that, that post peak era right now where some fluctuations we're seeing um, in wild turkey populations. But, you know, a lot of the, 
the best available research um, that, that was out there when state agencies were starting to see more robust populations, huntable populations, wild turkeys in their states. Um, they were using the science that had come from an era during the restoration uh, phase for, for wild turkeys in the 80s and 90s. And like Helium Powell, for instance, that was published in, in the late 90s. Uh, so recognizing that the vital rates like, like hen survival, poult survival, nest success uh, were, were likely far different and, and, and likely higher during those those periods than what we're seeing and experiencing now, especially in some of these states that are seeing uh, more more precipitous declines than uh, uh, than others. So there's there's multiple factors to um, to consider when you're looking at that and what's causing these declines for wild turkey populations. Certainly, we've seen some significant changes in land use, right? Uh, loss of CRP, uh, important brood habitat openings. Uh, we're seeing changes in in the dynamics and structures of our forests uh, with threats like non-native and invasive species, um, overcrowding, reducing visibility, and, and really taking and, and degrading what was uh, maybe good wild turkey habitat into, you know, subpar or um, not, not very good wild turkey habitat. You know, there's the ongoing threats of disease and impacts of weather, but you know, also from a from a regulatory standpoint and, and harvest, you know, wild turkeys are the only gallinaceous bird in North America that we harvest um, during, you know, that coincides with the breeding season of, of that bird. And so, you know, that I think it's created some more challenges as we're seeing some declines. Researchers and, you know, scientists, biologists want to look at that a little bit closer to make sure that, you know, we state agencies can still maximize hunter opportunity without potentially jeopardizing uh, a risk to the resource. And so uh, we're seeing more and more uh, growing concern with regards to the timing of uh, the seasons, the initiation of the start of the season. Uh, so traditionally, conservatively, state agencies would set up the, the start of their season date with the median uh, nest incubation initiation date. So when a majority of those hens are actively sitting on those nests and incubating uh, eggs on those nests. So the, the idea was that it would remove the chance for incidental harvest or illegal harvest of females, but also help ensure that most of those females were bred uh, prior to the removal of the males. And so uh, a lot of states, Ohio, for instance, um, as we've talked about a lot, Paul, you know, to, to their credit, you know, we're helping support ongoing research project with them in partnership with Ohio State University to, to look at that very thing and see if there's been any significant changes uh, with the timing of those, those breeding season parameters to see if there's a need to shift uh, regulations to account for those. And so, um, you know, I think it's it's multifaceted, but the more we can uh, we can assist our, our agency partners as well as, uh, you know, leading researchers across the country to address some of these things and update that, that information to fill in those gaps. Uh, the more informed and more confident I think we can be, um, especially providing recommendations or looking at changes in regulations moving forward. So um, un unfortunately, I don't think that there's there's an easy answer right now. I think it's a combination of several things. Um, but, you know, that's certainly what uh, a lot of folks are, are focused in on and uh, and willing to invest money in, including the National Wild Turkey Federation, of course. But uh, you know, I think, I think human nature, and I talk about this all the time, 10 times a week, I talk about this. Human nature is to find something easy 
right? And it could be anything in life. And so the, 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 the decline of turkey populations is no different. You know, we want to blame one thing. And, and everyone's one thing is different. It's, it's, it's the raccoon. Uh, it's an owl. It's weather. It's loss of habitat. It's, uh, you know, urban, urban expansion and industrial expansion, you know, you know, with habitat. So everyone wants to blame one thing, and it's not. It's not one thing. Like you said, it's, it's death by a thousand paper cuts at this point. And it's it's a multitude of things. So I want to I want to unpack some of the statements that, that you made there. So so let's let's define the restoration of the wild turkey. Brent Rogers and I we talked about this you know kind of in, you know the the historical perspective of of the the challenges that the wild turkey has taken uh, and the path they've taken. So let's let's define the restoration and when that kind of came to a close and 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 we'll just say it's done. We've we we humans hunters organizations we've established turkeys in all native areas so when when was that restoration completed yeah so the the idea was uh collectively states across the country wanted to try and restore wild turkey populations to all areas with with suitable habitat right uh, and so you know that's a point that you know we work with there's there's varying societal desires in terms of maybe what certain group or individuals would deem as desirable levels of wild turkeys, uh, most notably in, in urban areas, for instance, like the, the human wildlife interaction component certainly drives the, the decision making and the influence a little bit different than it does um, in more rural areas or a perspective uh, from a consumptive hunter like ourselves versus maybe somebody that that doesn't uh, um, enjoy or participate in, in hunting wild turkeys. So uh, but that, that being said, you know, um, you know, turkeys were almost, you know, nearly extirpated across the country, but in, in many states were um, through the early 1900s due to unregulated market hunting. Uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't managed and, um, you know, that overharvest led to dramatic reductions in birds. And then this shift in, in really the primary movements uh, in the conservation history, recognizing the importance of our wildlife species and that we needed to act in order to ensure the future of them moving forward. Uh, things put in place like the Lacey Act, for instance, uh, funding that uh, an excise tax through Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson Acts, and really modern conservation movement developing, you know, the seven tenets of the North American model of wildlife conservation uh, it was was critical to the success and, and ultimately the success of the restoration of wild turkey and, and other and other wildlife species, uh, notably as well. But you know, specific to wild turkeys, you know, there was an emphasis in the in the fifties and sixties that agencies were starting to place on trying to restore wild turkey populations uh, and ramping up all the way really until the you know the early two thousands. Uh, for the most part, by that. By that point, uh, across the eastern United States, a majority of um, wild turkey populations had been restored to suitable habitats at that point. So, uh, you know, right now, currently, 2020s, even 2010s, um, you know, there was very little trap and transfer work being done. Uh, but one, you know, one example of that where there is still some being done is in East Texas right now that, uh, you know, we're working with the state agency down there. My counterpart, Annie Farrell, uh, is helping work, work with the agencies and actually collecting birds uh, in the northeastern part of the United States and, and moving those birds down to, to East Texas to help establish uh, eastern population down there. So, um, you know, it, it's it was not something that happened overnight, but in areas when it did happen and they initiated the restoration efforts, these birds responded very quickly, very favorably. Uh, and like I said, they were at that, that increase um, in that, in that, 
that graph where reproductive rates were really high and, and uh, birds were, were flourishing. So, um, yeah, and now we're, we're to the point where, you know, we're trying to figure out what that new normal is, what that, what that balance is, where, where we expect populations to be and, and how to balance that with um, the societal desires and desires of hunters to make sure we have sustainable populations moving forward. Sure. Let's, let's, let's define what good, and we'll just stick with kind of the Eastern subspecies, you know, east of, east of the Mississippi, that's easy to talk about. And I think that's where a majority of the turkey hunters reside. Uh, let's talk about suitable habitat, desirable habitat for, for one, wild turkeys, uh, just in general. And two, when we get into that, that really important phase of nesting and brooding. So let's start with just like desirable overall turkey habitat. Yeah. So very broadly stated, you know, a mixture of upland hardwoods and, and openings, um, you know, interspersed throughout what their annual home range would be. You know, and home range size is, is driven by a number of factors as well, but resource availability um, is an important one that helps influence that. But you think about a maybe an average home range size of birds in, in Ohio or Indiana or Michigan, upper Midwest, uh, where you have, you know, uh, fairly suitable habitat for those birds being one to two square miles uh, in size. So, you know, in a mixture of mature upland hardwood forests, certainly, uh, you know, mask producing species, hard mass species um, like white and red oaks or other oak species um, are, are an important component, important factor uh, for, for wild turkeys. But turkeys, thankfully, um, are, are generalist in terms of the they're, they're going to take what's available in many cases for, for different food and uh, are, are able to adapt to different habitat types and, and different successional stages and, and make the most of it. So whether it's, you know, uh, taking avail uh, available waste grain, for instance, um, if they have adjacency to some, some agricultural fields, whether it's seeds from, from different, uh, you know, grasses or wildflowers or the insects, um, you know, associated with those in those openings. So uh, there's certainly uh, different resource needs depending on the seasonality, right? So um, if you wanted to start in the, in the fall, early winter, the importance, like I mentioned, of that that mass production is critical to help build up uh, you know, fat reserves uh, and ensure that they're going to go into those winter months in good condition. Um, and as as birds shift and move, you know, out of the winter into springtime, you know, food availability changes. Things start warming up and looking for seeps, um, finding finding access to any available uh, seeds or um, uh, other mast and uh, you know grasses, sedges, things start start popping up, things start greening up. Uh, but females will will start shifting their diet uh, to be comprised more of, of insects at that point. So uh, the importance of you know those, the the protein rich uh, insects to help with with their egg development um, during during that critical time period, and then hatch post hatch if uh, if a hen's able to successfully rear, um, you know one pole to, or more have a successful uh, nest, then the, the importance of those, those insects for that young bird um, are, are critical moving forward too. So, you know, something like 80 to 90% of uh, their diet comprised of the, during those summer months and the, uh, the breeding season is, is comprised of uh, animal or, or excuse me, uh, insect and animal matter. Yeah. So high, high, high in protein helps with that, um, the feather development, so they can reach that 10 to 14 day window where they can begin to start uh, fledging and, and 
getting up onto low hanging branches. And once they can do that, their survivability increase, increases uh, quite dramatically, uh, they, their ability to be able to evade predators. But so that their need and, and desire um, for food that they consume shifts seasonally. And it's important to think about that in terms of how they might use areas of their home range based on uh, resource availability. But what what they uh, what the biological needs for for the bird are during that time of the year. What's what's the incubation time for uh, for a hen on on eggs? Uh, on average, about twenty eight days. Twenty days. She's, Interesting. She's, yeah, yeah. So um, okay. it's thought of sometimes as, as 40 days and 40 nights on average, nine to 12 eggs, assuming that a hen on her first nesting attempt were to lay 12 eggs. Uh, in terms of uh, within her reproductive system, producing about one egg every 24 hours, give or take a couple hours. So about once a day, we can assume that if she's initiated a nest and dropped one egg, that it's likely that she, she may produce 11 more eggs. And on the 12th day, then begin actively starting to, to incubate that nest. Uh, about 28 days later from that, uh, assuming that the, the, the nest isn't depredated or uh, you know, destroyed by a predator or abandoned by her, uh, that the likelihood that um, you know, it hatches or one of the, at least one of the eggs is viable then um, would be after that mark. Now, does a, does a hen turkey, does she, does she roost in trees at night when she's nesting or does she stay on the nest overnight? Um, I, th I think that... I think it shifts. Um, generally, with ground nesting birds, uh, you're going to see an increased investment as it as they prolong um, with uh, uh, their investment later in the incubation period. Um, but majority of the time, that that hens spent sit, sitting actively on those nests, incubating. Um, if she'll, I she'll get up for recesses and 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 leave to to get um, you know what she needs during a nest break, um, you know, water and food, et cetera. But it's, it's very minimal during that time. If I, if I'm walking through the woods and I kick a hen up off of her nest, that doesn't disturb her nesting process. Does it? She'll come back. Yeah, likely. I, I think they've done some, some research on that to assess what, um, what constitutes is actual, you know, displacement for a female and how much disturbance is needed before you could actually disrupt that and cause her to abandon that. I think it varies on a, on a case by case basis. And I think it, it also depends on where she's at um, in the laying process versus uh, if she's, if she's actively incubating it, like you said, like uh, a lot of the research lends itself to uh, birds placing that additional investment. And in so the further along she may be on those in, within the 40 day investment um, to try and, rear brood and, and and have a successful hatch um the the harder and more challenging it may be to to disrupt her or bump her off to have her abandon that nest gotcha so what's the what's the good brood habitat what what is just as a land manager or someone that's that's that cares about wild turkey what's that good nest or brood habitat they're listening looking for yeah really what well, define define brood habitat on the front end of that if you would Sure. So like we like we talked about earlier, the importance of, of bugs, insects during that time period are, are critical to help with the rapid growth and development for young poults. So thinking about it in terms of open spaces that attract a lot of bugs. Um, so, you know, the more you can do to diversify uh, an, an open area or an opening within a within a forested landscape or adjacent to some of these the forest cover that they may use to to nest along. Uh, 
think about those openings in terms of how a, how a, a young turkey might use it. So uh, oftentimes, you know, an opening just as an opening or say it's just it's chock full of, you know, even native warm season grasses, uh, try and get down um, on your knees or lay, lay down, for instance, and try and look through that. Think about that in terms of how a young poult might try and traverse through that and navigate through that. So you're not looking for an opening area that's so inundated um, with grasses and wildflowers that young poults can't move through that. Um, so, but it, it's not devoid with so much vegetation that it's that it's not going to have you know adequate um, insect abundance within within those open areas. So uh, that that's that's what I would say. Certainly, um, trying to manage for for diversity is going to help with. Uh, with insect abundance. So managing these openings through periodic mowing, prescribed fire, um, you know, trying to set back non-native invasive species within those areas. But uh, yeah, smaller um, wildlife openings or openings adjacent to, to forested habitat that are going to attract insects is what, what we're shooting for. You just said periodic mowing. So if I'm a, if I'm a landowner and I've got just a field that I don't necessarily cut hay off of, uh, should I be brush hogging it kind of in that first, just say mid May in the Midwest when it's really starting to, to flush out and grow and it's getting crazy or should I, should I stay at the brush hog for a little bit? You have to assess it on a, on a case by case basis. You have to step back and look at what the current site conditions are before you, um, make a determination and, and determine how, how you're going to manage that. Uh, you know, primarily uh, a goal or objective would be for, for brush hogging would be to treat some of the less desirable woody species that may be choking out those grasses and, and forb components of those openings, uh, as opposed to just, you know, continually mowing an area. Certainly, you I mean, you can go in um, and use chemical applications selectively in some units and treat the undesirable aspect of those openings effectively and, and keep more of the things that you want without having to mow too. So um, mowing certainly a, a management tool, just like prescribed fire, um, just like chemical herbicide application would be as well. Um, and there's there's certain things to assess. The, the primary goal, if I was talking to a landowner, would be uh, speak speak with a professional, talk to a local um, you know, biologist within your area or forester if you're thinking about steps that you might take to manage it, and see you know conduct an inventory of what you do have and what you don't have, um, and then think about it from a, a broader perspective. Think about it from a, if you. Uh, went online and got onto Google Maps or Onyx and uh, you know zoom out like one to two square miles within where your property is. Uh, not all of us in the eastern United States are blessed to have access to or own um, you know an area that would encompass uh, an annual home range for wild turkeys. So think about it in terms of perspective of what your property may offer seasonality wise for for wild turkeys at that point, and then based on what you can offer for those birds, how can you improve it based on what you have right now. Yeah. I think it's, it's an important topic or discussion to have the importance of, of landowner support and the role of private landowners in every state like Ohio here, 95% of the property in this, in this state is owned privately owned. And so when we talk about like impact on the landscape and what we can control, and I say, we, I mean the people like public land, right? So in the NWTF, the Ohio department of natural resources, there's such a small percentage of land that, 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 we can do things on, you know, that we can control. So I think, I think landowners, you know, if, if, even if you're not a wild turkey hunter, never will be. I mean, if you just want to prop up wildlife, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that people can do uh, to, to help with that. 
from the private landowner side. So that's an important conversation that gets looked, you know, passed over quite often. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Paul. And I mean, to the point you and I discussed earlier about turkeys being an umbrella species and a generalist, and a lot of the work that, that you can do to benefit other species, depending on what your goal or your objective is as a landowner. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in it for trying to, um, you know, gain some timber value and determine what that is and manage your property for that, there are management techniques and, and uh, silvicultural techniques that you can use to manage your property that are going to benefit wild turkeys and other species. If you care about you know, pollinators, insects, butterflies, et cetera, the list goes on and on. Um, there's multiple things you can do to, uh, um, to, to benefit those species as well uh, and, and still help out the wild turkey. So yeah, it starts with what, you know, for landowners, what their goals and objectives are. And like you said, I mean, Indiana, uh, again, that's, that's 96, 97% privately owned Ohio, um, mid to upper nineties as well. So, you know, the importance of being able to impact uh, wildlife habitat at a broad enough scale to influence populations, you really can't have that discussion or be effective uh, at what we do without impacting private lands. And so that's, you know, as a Turkey Federation, that's why we, we try and assist our, our federal partners um, with work and conservation delivery on private Lands. Most notably, we've got an agreement, multi-year agreement with the NRCS um, and under the National Forestry Initiative. So we've got, I believe it's now um, 26, 27 um, project foresters across the country right now helping private landowners uh, develop forest management plans and ensure that, you know, they're, they're implementing practices and, and finding cost share for those practices to do sound conservation work for wild turkeys and other wildlife, depending on what their goals are. So, yeah, we, we have to be actively involved on both private and, and public lands. Before we move on to the kind of the next segment of this, of this, uh, this talk. If I'm a private landowner and I want, I like what you just said, I want to get active. I want to come up with a plan. What's, what's a resource that I can get online and find? Where, where should I start? Yeah. Uh, you can go to, right to our website, uh, nwtf.org, um, and find uh, staff in your area. You can click right on our state and, uh, it'll bring up conservation staff within that area. And, uh, if we can't help you directly, we can get you in contact with uh, an agency or partner that can. So in some instances, you know, I'm not the one directly facilitating the private lands work. I may not be the one to be able to meet with the landowners and, and help them develop a plan, but I can initiate that process and get them in contact with the folks that help can help provide support for that. Yep. And you and, and if you're listening to this, you can reach out to me. I'll get you, I'll point you in the right direction too. So Ryan, that's what we call a softball question. So good. good job. So let's get into the let's get into the the mind of a wild turkey in the spring. So we've got so let's just talk. So if I'm if I'm a Tom uh, in this country between just say mid-March to June, what is the number one thing on my mind? It's procreating. That's it, man. Absolutely. I was I was like, Passing all right, well, your genetics. Yeah, that's it. Procreating. I'm like, okay, I want to I want to I want to see what he's going to say. I want to see how he's going to answer that. So Tom, man, we're looking to breed. So what's let's let's talk about like the vocalizations of a wild turkey during during the spring, and we'll talk about we'll kind of start out with the hens and, and and we can keep this kind of high level. And I, I think this is one of those that you could dive into a conversation for hours about the sounds that turkeys make and why they make it. So we'll keep it, we'll keep it kind of, you know, we'll, we'll stay, we'll stay above the clouds, if you will. Um, you know, as a hen, what, what are some of the vocalizations? So a hen, she's, she's looking for a mate during yeah. that time. So what is, what is a hen saying in the woods? So um, there's, there's multiple, 
different sounds and, and vocalizations, right? That that wild turkeys are make you know, throughout the year, and and that, that those vocalizations really start um, when when hens are are incubating and on the verge of uh, those poults hatching from the eggs. There's there's small and subtle clucks and vocalizations that those hens that hens have been recorded using. Uh, probably the the most common one would be the yelp. Um, that's just a you know it's it's a pretty basic call um, that the female will. Um, I guess I, it's, it's a lot easier to do uh, generally when I'm doing these uh, um, these types of talks with a turkey call on my mouth to, to be able to uh, uh, state what a yelp is. But um, it's essentially like it's a there you perfect. Go. Yeah, <laughs> just a notification. And it's it's a communication from that that hen either to their poults or during the breeding season to to other birds to let them know, hey, I, I'm over here. This is where I'm located and, and a communication piece back and forth between birds. Uh, so generally, yeah, it's it's those those two tones. Um, it's there's there's excited yelps um, that you can do in, in a quicker repetition at a quicker pace that can help elicit a different response. But, um, you know, I, I'll probably get kicked by some folks on this one all, but I, I find there's, there is some overlap with, uh, um, hunting. Elk. I think you and I talked about it, between hunting elk, trying to call in elk, uh, during, during their breeding season versus hunting turkeys and calling in turkeys. And some of the Western hunters are adamantly, um, you know, opposed to the fact that there's any correlation whatsoever between the two and, and uh, you know, listen to guys like Corey Jacobson, for instance, and talking about his calling techniques and vocalizations of elk uh, and trying to elicit a response from, from, from that elk, either the response to fight or the response to breed. And the, the same types of, um, you know, techniques are used for turkey hunters and callers uh, and birds in the wild, you know, eliciting uh, a, that, that response very, very simply. I think sometimes we, we can make it complicated um, as turkey hunters, especially if something either goes right magically or it, it has the opposite effect and that, that bird's hung up. He's not responding. He doesn't care. Well, he must have not liked what I said. Sometimes we try and probably anthropomorphize it or humanize it so we can we can relate to what those birds are saying and try and try and figure it out. Um, but uh, yeah, generally the, the Yelp is one of the most basic and and um, often if if you know how to Yelp and you can walk in, in turkey woods as a brand new hunter, um, you know the likelihood that you can call a bird in is is pretty high. Yeah, for sure. So one, one thing that I think a lot of, uh, new turkey hunters don't know, and a lot of even guys have been turkey hunting for, you know, four, four or five seasons. Um, so one thing that I think that a lot of new hunters don't understand, uh, and even guys that have been hunting for a couple of seasons, Ryan, is that when, when a hen yelps in nature, when a hen yelps, a gobbler gobbles, that the hen is supposed to come to the tom. That's how, that's how they, the turkeys want it to work, right? Yeah. That's the biology of the bird. That's, that's how they're, they're wired. That's how they're, you know, exploded like, um, you know, the breeding strategy for the wild turkey is, is supposed to work. Now, granted the, the various vocalizations and the, the drive and desire for birds to procreate um, can, can alter that and influence it. And as a turkey hunter, you're thinking about it again, trying to just very basically elicit that response either to breed or to, to fight, um, you know, depending on the calls that you use or select to use, then, then we're essentially reversing the biology there and trying to have that bird 
coming to us um, and, and mimicking, you know, the hen vocalizations, clucks, yelps, purrs, um, cuts, etc. Um, so yeah, it's uh, in that in that sense, it's it's flipped on its head. So that's that's in many times when you hear about birds, you know, out displaying or they get within a certain range where they're quote unquote hung up. Um, those those birds are are doing exactly what the biology of the bird is. They're, how they're hardwired um, and in process that, Hey, I'm, I'm here. Uh, you can hear me gobbling, uh, you know, and they're starting the morning on the roost and they're, they're gobbling from that high point and hoping that, that their gobble carries to let those other females know that, Hey, I'm over here. You can come to me. And then once they get to, you know, uh, within a certain distance uh, from those females or where they think that call is coming from, then they'll start using those visual cues where they'll uh, start strutting and displaying, spitting, spitting and drumming, you know, and those, those visible cues for those hens to say, Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a mate, you know, I'm look at me uh, puffing their chest out and trying to, uh, you know, be dressed to the nines as we would say, and uh, convince those hens to, to come over. And so he can, he can copulate with them and breed with, uh, that female and as many of the hens as they can. So when, when, when a turkey's hung up and like you said, they're waiting, they're, they're doing something cool. We, most of the time we don't get to see it. So what, what's the, what's the kind of the biological response when, you know, if we're, if I got a turkey hung up, is there, there's no magic call that you can throw out to get them to come. That just doesn't exist. So what's the, what's the kind of the, the response that if you're working a turkey and he's hung up and, and you're calling, doing this, doing all these things that you do, that you only learn from experience is he just is it just frustration at that point that he finally comes out and 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 checks you out yeah i don't know if it's if it's frustration or you know if, it, if it's curiosity or maybe there's a maybe you're eliciting more of that fight response if if maybe another male has come in um and began courtship behaviors and, and pulled her away from him too. So, you know, in a lot of instances, you'll hear guys say, you know, they just go ahead and try and shut up for a while, sit tight, don't move. Um, movement can be your biggest enemy in turkey hunting as, as most of us know. Um, but yeah, if you can, if you can just try and sh shut up, sit still and wait them out, see if that, that curiosity will get to that bird. You know, I've, I've heard other turkey hunters and folks far more well-versed than I am and, and researchers even talk about, um, you know, calling to a bird, it's responding and then, but it, it never shows up. Uh, um, and then even within a few hours, even if he, they go on throughout their day, let's say they're, they're, they're hand up, they've got multiple hens with them. They go on, conduct breeding activities. And then during that, that mid morning period, that lull or hens will break away and begin some of their, you know, searching for selecting a nest site or, or dumping eggs or, beginning to incubate um, those those gobblers those birds will come back almost to that exact point where they last heard that call come from so their you know their ability to be able to hone in on those vocalizations those noises those sounds is is incredible uh, pinpoint it and triangulate it almost to to an exact spot where a turkey call had come from be it a hunter or or a hen so but yeah they're they're pretty reliant on the biology stating hey if i if i hear that bird um you know she 
once I get to within that range, especially in more open areas, if you're hunting, you know, along field edges, for instance, that can create its own challenges in and of itself. That bird's going to try and put itself in an opportunity where it can it can display and be seen to attract mates, um, but also be heard too. So, you know, it's different from being uh, on ridge tops or open fields or in the mornings when they're on the roost to try and take full advantage of of the terrain. Um, to uh to carry out the the sound from their gobbles and attract as many females as they can yeah i remember reading and 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 hearing people talk about that uh that research you're talking about where they had gps turkeys and then they gave the locations to gps hunters who were part of the study and then they, they showed where they were at and showed the movements and i mean it was it was pretty religious that those turkeys were coming back to those to those same spots and and now that's called coursing right when when i see i'm a turkey i hear a hen i'm gonna go to that hen that's called coursing right i, I don't know that I, I know that term paul i've uh, heard people say if cor- you were, if the time you hear the hen and sorry coursing yeah no i'm not sure yeah i don't know maybe that's it maybe New that's just me. a yeah. hunter maybe that's just a hunter term they're coursing you taking the course i don't know i've heard a lot of okay. people say that that uh, that's uh but they are really good at that. I mean, you could have a turkey hundreds of yards, hundreds of yards away hear you, and they're mm-hmm. going to get there. It could be just one. You call one or two times, they're going to show up to that to that almost like you said, almost to that exact spot. I mean, that is impressive. Yeah, and, and you uh, think of all the factors that have to go into that sometimes to make a hunt. You know, allow you the opportunity for a successful harvest. You can call it the hunt successful based on whatever an individual your own individual metrics are. But in order to get that that bird to commit and elicit that response to get them into a range for you to be able to take a, an ethical shot on a bird. Uh, a lot of things have to go right. And situations change daily, you know, change in barometric pressure, uh, the amount of vocalizations that you hear, that the the number of two-year-old gobblers, which are predominantly the ones uh, the most vocal um, that you're you're apt to hear, that the makeup of that and the density of two-year-olds, you know, it's all going to impact the, you know, your potential for harvest and success and, and what you deem as a successful hunt too. So uh, yeah, a lot of things have to go right. Um, and sometimes you have to flip the script uh, based on the way those birds are hardwired and try and get them into, to come into range. So that's what, that's what makes it fun. And it's that it it's is. A chess match. Yep, it is. So let's, let's just, just kind of, kind of really wrap this up and bring it together with the language of the turkey uh clucks and purrs we mentioned those uh what is what is a purr and, and I, I don't mean like it, it's it's literally like it's it's a turkey purring okay so everyone's heard of cat purr that's what it is but what is the why are they doing that generally purrs are associated with like um not a fighting purr for instance but if you if you're a hen purr or poults um it's like it's like a i guess best way to describe it is maybe like a rolling uh really soft call um that uh for me anyway it's associated with contentment and generally you'll you'll hear hens and poults do that especially when when they're bugging or feeding in in a small opening um if you if you listen really closely you'll hear some really soft subtle vocalizations be mixed in periodically you'll hear a cluck um but it's 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 really low it's really soft and generally it's um uh, it's something that, uh, as a turkey hunter, I would use maybe to um, to to reassure a gobbler that hey, you know, all is all is great over here. Or man, these these bugs are are delicious. The uh, you know, really really enjoying, really happy where I'm at. No no concern, um, you know, for 
anything related to nearby predators, et cetera. Every, everything's good over here. Come on over and, and take a look. Good, good uh, vibes, man. That's what that means, right? Good yeah, vibes in the turkey. Exactly. Guys. So Come what's, what's up? It's great. What's a shock gobble? Um, essentially when a, when a bird re- responds to uh, a sudden noise, something along the, the same lines of a, a similar frequency or pitch uh, that bird hears, um, it's, it's likely to elicit uh, a response from turkeys and, and get them to gobble. So uh, it's, it's something you can use. Yeah, I've, I've heard, I've been on a golf course, uh, teed off and heard a bird respond to that gobble, slam a car door, uh, you know, a crow call, for instance, or a pileated woodpecker, uh, an owl who in the, in the morning or mid mornings, um, try and get the, the bird to respond, uh, and, and give away its location, uh, is a shot gobble. Um, so trying to, I guess, get, get a male bird to gobble, um, using maybe unconventional or non, non-turkey vocalizations. Just give away your location, Tommy. That's all we need. We just need your location. Then we can come up with a plan to try and get, get into your living room. Yep. Now volume. Do I need to call loud all the time? Yes. As loud and as much as. (laughs) Yeah. If if everyone in the Turkey woods started calling as loud and and as often as they could, the populations would explode, right? Yes. (laughs) You would kill, you would see a Turkey. Uh, It's all. So I, I take a look at it. Each hunt is different. Each bird you call in, you kill for, or, you know, whatever the situation, try and try and react. Um, you're, you're calling frequency and your volume based on, um, your communications with that, with that bird, how far away are they? Um, and also kind of keep in the back of your mind too, that just because you may be hearing vocalization from a bird that's, you know, a half a mile away, there may be other birds that are closer to. Um, so try and read a situation when you're in it. And you, I think the really only way to do that is years and years of experience and especially things may be going uh, the wrong way or the other way, but think about it as a conversation. Um, you think about like, if you're, you've got toddlers at home and you're just hearing yelling and screaming, you know, throughout the entire day when the kids go to bed, they like, what's, what's going to draw your attention to react. It's, it's going to be more soft, subtle tones. Maybe it's, it's something else or, uh, the fridge opening to, to grab a cold beer. And, um, it, as from a, a gobbler's perspective, maybe how, how can you change that up and offer them something that, that they may or may not want to hear. So there's a time to be loud, time to be soft. Um, you know, when you're hunting heavily pressured birds, for instance, that like, that would be, um, the example I was given in terms of maybe hearing a lot of calling or a lot of loud calling, you might not be as responsive to that as versus hearing something more soft and subtle. So I, I personally, I shift my, my techniques based on the feedback I'm getting from the birds on that specific hunt. And then I'll shift as I, depending on where I'm hunting, if I know I'm hunting public land and hunting pressured birds, I'll go about things differently. If I'm hunting more, um, you know, secluded or, or timbered forest tracks, for instance, versus, you know, open ag fields and in more open areas where they're going to be more reliant on, on site. Um, you know, I, I think about how I'm, I'm going to use a, a combination of my tools, my calling or, and or decoys and set up differently. Um, and then, you know, I think you can't really undersell the importance of, uh, you know, the non-turkey vocalizations. For instance, you talked about the shock gobble and the use of that just that not the overuse, but the use of it to be able to locate that bird, um, you know, once or twice in terms of where it's at and then put yourself move into a position or safely get into a position 
we think you can increase your chance of of calling that bird in. But sometimes those um, those auditory cues that are, are um, non nonverbal per se or non not a turkey call like scratching um you know really softly if you can get away with a little movement with your hand down by your legs and just scratching in the leaves and making a you know, that sometimes has worked for me in the past to to get a bird that extra five ten yards something uh you know that's that's not a perhaps a, a common call that, that these birds have heard so just try and think about it from a few different perspectives and and see what see what works you know, I like to end these conversations with the question, 60 seconds or less, what's your best advice for a turkey hunter? And I, I feel like that was it. Like that's, uh, do you have anything else that's better than that advice? I mean, that was great. What's six, six seconds less. What's the best advice you got for a turkey hunter? Boom. That's 60 it. seconds. Yeah. 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 That's it. That and sitting still, um, which can be the hardest thing to do, especially if they're, if they're non-vocal, that can be a big challenge, but sometimes I've, I've been busted. Um, and those have been hard learned experiences and, and frustrating when, uh, when you think all things are going wrong, but they're just not going out. Maybe you envision it in your mind. So yeah. You know, I, go ahead. Oh, hopefully, you know, those are, those are some tools I've, I've learned along the ways in, in 20 some years of turkey hunting um, that have gone wrong and, and gone right sometimes. So a person could turkey hunt for a million years, a million springs. And a million and one, you're still going to be busting turkeys. Like that's just that's just part of it, man. Because yeah. I don't think I don't think a turkey hunter can learn enough. I don't think there's, it's possible to be disciplined enough to not scare turkeys. I mean, it's just it's just how it is, man. You're always going to do it. So, and I, I think that's what makes it so great. And I think that's why so many people like to do it. I mean, it's it's no different than life. We learn so much more through our failures than we we do generally through our successes. And the more opportunities you have to time, spend time in the woods, like that's that's a great problem to have. And, and regardless of how, the outcome of whether or not you're hauling back a bird or not, so um, you, if you're if you're out there, you pay attention, you listen, and you get engaged in that conversation with turkeys. And it's it's it can be a uh, um, an addiction for many of us that that know, and, and hopefully more into the future. Yeah. Good stuff. Ryan, thank you so much for your time, man. Thanks for all the effort and energy that you put into to your job and to, into the work that the National Wild Turkey Federation is doing. Uh, it's 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 really good. It's, it's cool to see, man. You guys do a great job. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate the time today, man. Anytime. Thanks, bud.